Okay, good morning, everyone. We continue our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian, and we're looking at sin. And we'll pick up at the bottom of page 58 with question 105. Which testimonies of Scripture show that original sin exists and what it is? And I'll simply direct your attention there once again to a lengthy number of texts from Genesis to all the way through Ephesians to Old and New Testament cited where this is thoroughly taught and proved. And then over on page 59 at question 106, is it necessary to acknowledge original sin and even to acknowledge it in such a way that it is truly and properly sin? So we'll be looking at these things uh, as we progress along today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so must we acknowledge that original sin as truly and properly sin? Let's read Chemnitz's response. The Holy Scriptures teach not only that actual sins conflict with the divine law and are truly sins, which human reason also acknowledges to some extent, but also that the hereditary evil of original sin, which all men naturally propagate it, beginning with them beginning in their very conception and birth, and by which their whole nature has been perverted and depraved, is most of all truly and properly sin, conflicting with the law of God and meriting eternal wrath. In fact, it is the chief sin, from which, as from a root, fount, and cause, all other actual sins go forth. As the proof texts of Scripture in the preceding question emphasize, Luther also had this in mind when he called that original evil a natural sin or a sin of nature, likewise a personal sin or sin of a person. He namely intended that in unregenerate man, it signified not only that thoughts, desires, words, and deeds are evil or sin, but also that nature or the person itself infected by that original sin, as with poison, is corrupt and depraved. Okay, so original sin then is in and of itself condemned because it's a fallenness of the creature, an orientation of the creature in opposition to God, and then from that flow forth thoughts, words, and deeds. So I know existentially, that is to say in our experience, we don't control our thoughts, or at least not those spontaneous kind of thoughts that pop into our minds, and some of them are very sinful, and it doesn't take but a second to be like, what on earth is that? (laughs) And to condemn it within our own minds. But it's there, and while that we may feel as though Well, since I'm not in control of that, I'm not culpable for that. I can't be held accountable for that. Well, it came from somewhere, and where did that? What is that somewhere? It's you. It's your mind. It's your brain. That's where it came from. And so you can see how deep the corruption is. Then, all right. Any questions on that, or any questions on original sin in general, as Chemnitz has been teaching it? So far, so good. Okay, 107, is then a man's nature, person, or essence, or his body and soul, original sin itself? And if you've been following along with our Thursday readings in the service, you know the answer. Chemnitz answers, in the small called articles, original sin is thus described, that it is a very deep corruption or deprivation of human nature, Worth pausing there because you can actually talk about it not only as 
So human nature and then being twisted. But you can also talk about it as subhuman. And that's the point he's making with the word, um, I just lost it, deprivation of human nature. That fallen man is actually in a subhuman state. God made man in the Edenic state, Adam and Eve. And since our fall, I mean, you can even hear it in the word fall, can't you? We are now sub what we were created, subhuman in that sense. All right, so it is a very deep corruption or deprivation of human nature. But what sane man will declare that what has been depraved is the same as that by which it was depraved. Just as the leprosy by which a body is infected and the leprous body of a man are, properly speaking, not the same. And since Paul declares that sin dwells in the flesh, Romans seven sixteen through 18, properly speaking, therefore, the flesh in which evil dwells and evil itself, which dwells in the flesh, are not the same. So, again, this is really easy to understand if you simply think of this. When Jesus became man, did he necessarily become a sinful, fallen being infected with original sin in opposition to God? No, of course not. So, one can become man and be without sin, just as Christ was. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, but... Becoming man does not mean that you're sinful. So the essence of man is not sin. If it were, we'd have another problem. Not only could the incarnation not happen, but you'd have God being the author and creator of sin. So both of which we deny. And then, of course, a third way of looking at this, you can look at God's creation, you can look at Jesus' incarnation, you can also look then at the resurrection of us in our flesh, that is, in our bodies, we will be human and be uncorrupted without original sin in the new heavens and the new earth. So can you make a distinction between the diseased body and the disease? Can you picture Christ coming and removing the disease from the body and it still remains your body? Then you're, then you're picturing original sin correctly. God creates a human being and then there's a terrible deep corruption that interpenetrates all of it, but that Terrible, deep corruption can be removed by Christ. Okay. So, to be human is not to be a sinner. That's a condition in which we find ourselves as humans. Make sense? Okay, it's an important distinction because otherwise to be human is to sin, then God's guilty of creating sin. Christ becomes a sinner by virtue of his incarnation. When we're raised in our flesh on the last day, we'll remain with these sinful impulses. None of that is biblically true. We want to, divide, we want to protect ourselves against all of those errors. On the flip side, we want to protect ourselves against the Pelagian errors and all their shapes and forms. That's the idea that somehow... The corruption of the original sin has left something within us pure, usually identified as the will or as reason or as the intellect or something like this. And if that's pure, then that must cooperate in one way, shape, or form with God in justification. So it's Pelagianism if it's all up to you. It's semi-Pelagianism if you start it and God finishes it. It's synergism if God starts it and you finish it. <laughs> it's like how many different ways can we play on the same theme? But that's where you get Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and synergism, all of which are rejected. So we're steering between these two ditches, these two opposite errors, as is so often the case in theology. So when we say that Christ is the great physician of body and soul, we know that he's ultimately going to heal us from sin and from all the resultant corruption, the suffering, the sickness, the disability, the death within us. That's all going to be removed. Okay, so on we go then. 108. 
Does this passage then mean that the very nature of man after the fall is per se or in itself still clean, good, unhurt, and uncorrupted, and that only original sin in nature is evil? Here's Chemnitz's answer. The church rightly sings and confesses that by the fall of Adam, the whole nature and essence of man has been completely depraved, And scripture says, they have all gone aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. There is not even one, Romans 3.12. And because of that corruption, the whole depraved nature of man is accused and condemned by the law unless there is remission for the sake of Christ as the mediator apprehended by faith. Okay, so where does this get challenging? It would get challenging, for example, when we confess in one of our settings that we are by nature sinful and unclean. That could be understood wrongly. That is to say, the essence of what it means to be a human being, just human nature is itself corrupted. But that's not what we're confessing. Our sinful nature, um, our nature has become sinful thoroughly in such a way that we are by nature sinful and unclean, by natural birth sinful and unclean. That's what we're confessing there. But right, that, that language of do you have nature sin, are you naturally sinful, are you essentially sinful, which is what this question in particular is looking at, um, can be understood rightly and wrongly. And it's important to get it right, it really is. And if you feel as though, I hope not, but as you feel, if, if you feel as though you're off in some kind of theological woods making distinctions where it's unimportant to make distinctions, well then do just trace back to what Chemnitz just quoted from Romans 7, 16 through 18. That there Paul talks about the flesh in which evil dwells making a distinction between the flesh there and evil, which indwells it. So you find this distinction thoroughgoing in the scriptures. All right. So then at 109, a lengthy setup and question. Is original sin such a light evil as some outwardly spattered spot that can easily be wiped off? So that nature, meanwhile, remains unhurt and good, or at least in spiritual things, it nonetheless of itself has and is capable of something good. So that's the question now back on the other error of Pelagianism. And here's the answer. Original sin, as we said, is a most profound corruption by which the nature of man has been completely and utterly depraved in body and soul and in all powers, so that in the sight of God, especially in spiritual things, Note that, especially on spiritual things. No good dwells in our flesh, but by nature every imagination of the thoughts of the human heart is only evil. In fact, human reason can neither imagine nor understand how profound, horrible, and grave and evil original sin is. But that must be learned and known from the divinely revealed word. For the heart of man is so evil, perverse, and shattered that it is inscrutable, Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. And so great is the magnitude of the original sickness that it cannot be healed but by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost. This healing begun in this life will be completed in eternal life to come. So a couple of things worth pointing out there. This is familiar turf, or should be, I think, by now. And that is that we're so corrupt, we don't even know how corrupt we are. The mechanisms by which we would rightly judge ourselves are themselves corrupt. So, like, it's like a criminal judging himself, you know, like, what's he going to plead guilty to? Well, I did this thing, but I had every reason I, was, I should have done it, so, you know, I should get off light. And everybody would look at that and be like, well, that's a little biased. And that is a microcosm for how all of us as sinners weigh and assess our sin. We don't understand it as deeply, as profoundly as we ought. The scriptures reveal that to us. 
So that's the first point and should be a familiar point. And the second point is that, and this is more controversial in later Lutheranism, it shouldn't be. It's, again, thoroughly taught in the scriptures. But that's that original sickness cannot be healed but by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost. And that language is coming from Titus 3 in a baptismal section, that through baptism, um, the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost is poured out on us in such a way that we become regenerate and renewed. Now, notice what it says. This healing begun in this life. So we're not, we don't teach as the holiness bodies do that it's completed in this life and that there are certain people who are finally done with original sin. That's preposterous. But it is begun in this life. And so the healing is begun. And there are ways in which a regenerate and renewed man, one who is indwelt by the Holy Ghost, is entirely different than a man who is unregenerate, unrenewed, and does not have the Holy Ghost. And we look forward to the completion of this regeneration and renewal in the eternal life to come. Sometimes called sanctification, because the Holy Ghost, sanctus, holy, makes us holy, sanctifies us. All right, any questions? Everybody okay? There's a, there's a hand. Are we doing a mic, or you want me to just repeat? There you are. Is this correct? Um, so if... If... Um, if man believes that he is his thoroughly his nature is corrupt and unclean and sinful, that there would be a danger in saying, "Well, that's just my nature." Mm-hmm. So, so then the idea is, well, since the fall, our nature is transformed into that. But the idea is that it shouldn't be that way, and so we should have this idea that we're corrupt, but. That's not as it should be, and we should seek to become uncorrupt through Jesus' salvation. But this idea that it's, it's, yeah, that's the way it is, but it's not supposed to be that way. Is that correct to think that way? If I'm understanding correctly, the the Christian's able to discern that how he is is not right. Yeah. Yeah, there's a sense in which the, the unregenerate, the unbeliever, the pagan can understand that as well, but he quickly suppresses it because it's proof of his accountability to God. It's his own conscience accusing him and excusing him, and he is engaged in a lifelong, it tends to get easier over time, but a lifelong suppression of that reality and of that voice of God, as it were, within his own heart. Yeah, it, it, it seems then... That there is a danger, and you mentioned it, the complication of, of a confession that we are by nature sinful and unclean, mm-hmm. that that could become an excuse to say, well, that's my nature, so you know, absolutely. I do what I can and I repent, but I just that's the way I am. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I've encountered that in the wild. I've encountered that in the wild um, where when confronted with sin, a person who has no doctrine of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and, uh, and really has only a doctrine of original sin, will say some variation of just that. Well, I'm a sinner. What did you expect? Well, are you going to like repent of that? I don't really see the point. I'm just going to do it again. It's inevitable. All men are liars. I lie. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, so it is. It does exist in the wild. I've encountered it. Well, I see this as Romans two, and Paul says they are without excuse. In mm-hmm. addition to acknowledge, yeah, exactly. they, they can acknowledge the sin, but they're without excuse. Yeah, every every human being. I mean, if there is an exception to this, which is commonly argued that there is, it only proves the rule. I don't really believe there's an exception either. But that is that every human being understands that there is a God, that he, is, that he falls short of that glory of God. 
It's precisely Paul's argument in, in Romans. What happens then? Why do you have men so vehemently opposed to that and engaged in idolatry and malfeasance of every kind? And that is, Paul says, because they suppress the truth within them. So the truth is there. It can be suppressed and damaged to the point where it's only there in a misshapen, malformed, no longer fully functional way. Yeah, that would be an, an example. Mm-hmm. So the suppression of that voice would be, I mean, why, like for example, in context here, a pagan could have this idea of like, why am I addicted to, let's say, alcohol, and I don't want to be addicted to alcohol? And psychology would be like, oh, it's this brain chemistry, and it's that brain chemistry, and it's this genetic thing, and it's that genetic thing, and maybe there's some behavioral therapy, or some chemical therapy, or, but the thing remains within that man's heart of why am I this way and don't want to be this way. Now, that, that makes that such a man without excuse because he ought to recognize that by these contradictory wills within him, where does that morality come from? If we're just animals that came up out of the mud and muck and our ancestors have brought us into being via sex and death, then why don't we just gratuitously follow those impulses? Eat, drink, be merry. Sleep with whomever we want to sleep with whenever we do. Live like animals and die like animals. What is this thing within us that says, I know that's not right, and I know that's not how I want to be? Cueing in on that is cueing in on the testimony of the conscience within a man, excusing him or accusing him. And that's why Paul says that, look, every single human being, even the pagan who doesn't have the Ten Commandments, who doesn't know any of this, still has the condemnation of his heart, so he's without excuse. He should turn to God and say, God, have mercy upon me. And really what you're defining there is a God who's you know, enunciating sin. So again, it doesn't, it doesn't take rocket science to say, there is a God, he's created me, I've fallen short of his glory, I know that, I turn to him for help. And it, that primes a person to receive the gospel. If nothing else, such a person throws themselves on the mercy of God. But that never happens. Okay, yes, please. Yes, I heard that once you get saved, and you actually are given a new nature. Mm-hmm. And they say that someone, you have someone who's a Christian and someone who's not a non Christian go out and send the same ways, mm-hmm. and the Christian will actually feel more, more miserable because he's going contrary against. His new nature. Yes. So I'm just wondering if you can comment. How does this new nature? How how is that the in a, in a relationship with original sin that's still in us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're at war with each other. So Romans seven is really helpful because Paul will talk about the law of sin in his members, and what he means there is like think of like the law of gravity. You know, just gravity is that constant pull. So the law of sin, the constant pull of sin within him. But he says, I agree with the law that it is good. So it is no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells in me. So there are these two contrary natures, these two eyes. So... It is no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells in me recognizes that that's an alien nature now that is within us, and the new nature remains. This is why also, um, and I, I mean, I, I see this done all the time in late Lutheranism without explanation. So take, for example, I think we, I think we ran into that earlier. Let me see where it is. There's Romans. Where was it where we quoted 
there is none who does good. Does anyone recall? We quoted, I was certain we quoted or paraphrased. There it is. In the answer to question 108, there on the left-hand side of the answer, just picking up mid-sentence, Scripture says they have all gone aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. There is not even one, Romans 3.12. At that point in time in Paul's argument, he's not actually talking about Christians. Now, there's a way in which, in the same way we can talk about, like, well, there's a way to talk about your nature, the nature of man being a good thing and the nature of man being a bad thing. There's the same way in which you can talk about a Christian that makes these words true. So, you know, a Christian can say, there is no good that dwells within me, that is within my fallen nature, Anything that exists that is good within me exists on account of God. I get no credit for that. It's all his gift. That's a proper way of speaking. Um, we, can, we can reflect, too, in this way. Like, I mean, we're paraphrasing Job. One of my favorite uh, sentiments is he says rather profoundly, I am afraid of all my deeds. So it's when the reality of the law and the reality of your sinful nature strikes you, even as a regenerate man, you just plead guilty before God of all sins. And you say, there's not a single thing within me that I hold up as meritorious or worthy or commendable before God. Now, what's the danger here? The danger in how this can be misunderstood is a denial of that new nature within you. And a denial of the regenerate nature, which is a denial of the work of the Holy Spirit. And a denial that he has created within you an ability to recognize these things, paradoxically, about yourself and to confess them. And then to believe and entrust yourself to the God who gives his son to make atonement for those sins. And so, you know, if you were to just take out of context this idea of they have all gone aside, they have together become unprofitable, there is none that does good, there is not even one. If you make the Christian that subject, it's complicated. There's a way to rightly understand that and a way to wrongly understand that. You don't want to deny the work of the Holy Spirit, but we can also assert that on account of everything that is me, there's nothing but sin. The Holy Spirit works in me, creating a new man, and that new man bears fruit. And I'm going to give him credit for that, because the credit does belong to him. And I'm not, whatever it is that I'm saying, I'm going to be careful not to deny that. Because to deny that is to deny the baptismal reality. Also, we're quoting, uh, or par- yeah, yeah, quoting, paraphrasing Titus 3 with this regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost that we read about at the end of the answer to question 109. Yes, see a hand up here. Well, it's been for a while that I've been struggled with that idea that my sinful nature and forgiveness of God, you know, mm-hmm. how it really uh, get to that balance of understanding and joy mm-hmm. until I realized that God gave us all these resources, you know, to combat ourselves, our sinful nature with the law and gospel mm-hmm. that, that we should, we need to believe and to deny ourselves and act on the word mm-hmm. that we learn and pray daily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So God gave us already all the resources with, you know, with the service, with mm-hmm. the sacraments, and with his word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's really comforting. Yeah, absolutely. Excuse me. There is a recalcitrance to sin and a strength of that fallen human nature 
that ultimately God has to remove in us. I, I mean, no amount of the tools he's given us suffice that we can use them and purge ourselves of the sinful nature. There's one final act of grace that God does to us in this regard, and that is death. Death is the circumcision of the flesh, the cutting off of that original sin from us, so that death is the best thing that can happen to a Christian, not just because you go to heaven and you don't have to go to work anymore, but, but because... All of the original sin, all of that corruption that, though you, that stands in the way when you want to do good and convinces you to do evil, all of that that overcomes the good you want to do, that's going to be cut off and put away by this act of God in death. So we long for that day. In that day, so it, this is a helpful way of thinking too, though it's not all that of a familiar way. So in the same way we can talk about God creates Adam and Eve, Okay? And then the fall into sin, fall, creates a deprivation of human nature. We, properly speaking, become subhuman. So to have that sinful nature removed is to become, once again, fully human. Now, as an aside, that takes place only in the resurrection of our bodies, when we become fully, fully human. But upon death... The inner man, the soul, is restored to what it means to be human. That's why we can talk about becoming human (laughs) and not yet being human. That's where that language comes from. It's completely orthodox, completely acceptable language. So the process of sanctification is the process of becoming human, becoming as God created us to be. And that's, so there's, I mean, there's scriptures that spell this out where Paul will talk about our sanctification as coming into the fullness of the mature manhood. Or being conformed into the image of Christ is to be conformed into the image of the one who is ha anthropos or ecce homo, the man. And so a sanctification is a process of being conformed into Christ that is the process of becoming going from subhuman to fully human. And that fullness of our humanity is realized ultimately then in the resurrection of our bodies. Yeah, please. I have two questions. Mm-hmm. One is, where is, a, where is a scripture verse that I can read to renew that thought in my mind? Mm, yeah, good question. I think it's in Ephesians. Let me see if I can pull it up real fast. Because it would be worth it would be worth glimpsing at. Yeah, take a look at. Uh, let's take a look at Ephesians four thirteen. See if see if the uh, if the iPhone did me right here or not. If not, maybe we can find it quickly. I mean, there are many such places. I don't want to indicate that there's there are few. I think that this one is just very helpful. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, the whole, this is a major theme in Ephesians. He made it, so if, you think, if you're thinking of Ephesians, of course, one that's familiar to us, we were dead in our trespasses, Ephesians 2. Dead in our trespasses. And then God made us alive together with Christ. So that's the idea already of being dead and being conformed into life, which is in Christ. So... It's already there. And then as you go forward, oh yeah, go forward to um, Ephesians 4, I don't know where to pick up. Why not um, Ephesians 4.1, and let's just, we'll go fast, uh, but we'll be thorough. 
So Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, plural, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, which means different gifts, and perhaps even different amounts of certain gifts. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. This is his exodus, by the way. And he gave gifts to men. So he leads his exodus out of this world, leading a host of captives behind him. That's why on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're talking about his exodus. And then he gives gifts to men. And that's what Paul's really honing in on to say that he has given to each one of us according to the measure of his gift. All right, um, nine is aside from the point, but kind of fascinating anyway. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Uh, the historic reading of that verse is talking about the descent into hell. That's the historic take. It's only recently we've tried to make that something other. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. So he reigns. I mean, this is a point Luther picks up on. I don't know if it's specifically from this verse. He's got this beautiful statement that even if you died and went to Hades, even if you died as a Christian and went to the realm of death, or if you went to hell, you would find Christ and evidences of Christ's reign and rule there so that you would have no need to fear. And you would quickly depart from there on your heavenly way, your heavenward way. All right, so he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, so here's the gifts, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. There should be a comma there because he gives these others for the work of the ministry, not strictly speaking the saints for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay, so here's where we're picking up important. Like, why does he give prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers? He gives them to equip the saints. He gives them for the work of the ministry. He gives them for the building up of the body of Christ. Why? What's the purpose? What's the telos? What's the end? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, see conformity is the goal, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, comma, to mature manhood. That would be your proof text par excellence for what I'm talking about. To come into the full maturity of what it means to be man. To mature manhood, now here's a parallel phrase, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See? So being conformed into Christ is conformed into his death, conformed into his resurrection, but conformed into the image and essence of this new man. Why? Whose image and essence are we in now by birth? That of Adam. Well, we are being reborn into the, we have been reborn and are being conformed into the image and likeness of the new Adam, the new man, Christ. And so only when that's completed in us do we reach the maturity of manhood or the fullness of what it means to be ha anthropos or echi homo. It's kind of the glory in one of the high points in John's gospel where Christ has been scourged in and of itself is a sort of a death sentence. He's not going to survive that, even if he doesn't go to the cross. He's not going to survive that. He's already, in that act, um, been faithful unto death. And in some respects, too, what happens in the scourging is just, I mean, physically speaking, uh, worse to endure than the cross. And so when he's presented then before the people... And Pilate says, Echi homo or hidu ha anthropos, behold the man. Um, 
he is, it's a really profound moment in John's gospel because Christ has demonstrated the full, the fullness of the new humanity by being faithful in the most extreme and extraordinary of circumstances. So to be conformed into that image is the process of, quote-unquote, sanctification. Okay, so, yeah, we're um, just kind of once more. I know Paul's got a a jam-packed sentence here with a bunch of grammar, but until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, so much for those who deny progressive sanctification or progressive growth in the Christian life. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with, uh, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The idea of going from children to adults through conformity to Christ. Okay, does that... I don't know. He goes on, as you, as you can tell, if you've got an ESV, I think the next section is the new life. So then we're going to get even more concrete. Um, maybe for our purposes, why not glance down? No, let's just do it. Look, look real quick. I think this will pay off. At 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Why does this have to be said? <laughs> because the old Adam is still alive and well and thinks he can walk as the Gentiles walked and just gloss it over with a little bit of Jesus laminate and <laughs> everything will be okay. <laughs> so Paul has to, you know, the, even the Christian has to be, as whole man, a sinner and sane, has to be instructed and told, um, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Here's the part I think will be real apropos for our study. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires or passions, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, so central to the Christian life then is putting off the old self, putting on the new self, being conformed into the image of Christ, being conformed into the likeness of God, having true righteousness and holiness. Okay, well, Paul continues on and gives some more concrete admonition, including there, um, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, God being your Father. So like Father, like Son is the goal of our lives. And he just goes on to make more and more clear this distinction between the people of God and the people of of the world, the people of light, the people of darkness gets concretely into the estates and what it means to 
be a Christian within those, um, or really rather maybe vocations within the estate of the family. That's probably a better way to think about it, more accurate. All right, so does that suffice? It's, I mean, yeah, it's kind of like, like a major theme in Ephesians. I see a hand in the back, but did you have a, fi- yeah, a comment? The second question I had was, mm-hmm. I once heard a sermon on Peter's denial of Christ and Christ uh, after the resurrection talking to Peter. Mm-hmm. Peter, do you love me? Mm-hmm. So forth. And this was a Lutheran, Wisconsin Synod, and he said Peter had fallen from the faith as distinct from sinned. Okay. Can you comment on that? Mm, I don't want to comment on the specific sermon. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> but, okay, just, the idea. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, so what might be in the background, if, uh, just, if I were to try to take up that theme, what might be in the background is the idea that faith can't exist with mortal sin. So with this intention to sin, with this ongoing sinful reality in your life, like, you know, where that takes over is where you're not even acknowledging it as sin. And then it becomes a truly mortal sin. And faith can't coexist with that. So if maybe he's trying to say that Peter was in that state where he didn't yet trust that Christ had forgiven him. He didn't yet fully repent of his denial of Christ. He had to be restored through this thing. I'm trying to be charitable here. I don't think that that's how... I mean, if I were to try to preach it, that's how I'd do it. But I don't think I'd do it that way. I mean, what's really going on there, of course, is, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. That's evidence that he's converted. And I think, obviously, there's other evidences he's been converted and restored even prior to that. Yeah. And then, do you love me? Feed my sheep. That idea of the love for Christ then redounds to neighbor. So that when you're serving neighbor, you're really serving Christ. And when you're serving Christ, you're really serving neighbor. Yeah, I think there's some of that. There's some of that. And sort of the restoration to the office. And I mean, yeah, there's some markers in John's Gospel. Remember, the denial takes place by a charcoal fire. They're there at a charcoal fire. I think it's hard, though, to say that Peter's not converted. I think it's in that story. Somebody else, correct me if I'm wrong, that he takes off his outer garment and dives into the sea and swims ahead or tries to swim ahead to see Christ. If it's not that one, it's some parallel text. So I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't put a reconversion there, but I'd be fine with sort of a restoration that by the charcoal fire, there's this threefold denial. By a charcoal fire, there's a threefold confession. That confession is simultaneously the conferral of the shepherding office or the restoration of the shepherding office. Fine. I think all those themes are there. Yeah. Please. So I think it was last week you had um, shared a quote from Lewis's uh, Out of the Silent Planet. Yeah. And as we're uh, talking about this this morning, I'm reminded of a quote from the second book in that series, Paralandra. Mm. And so here you have uh, the protagonist, Ransom, being transported between worlds, and there are two angelic creatures that are overseeing that and keeping them safe. And they are having a conversation amongst these, themselves, these two angelic creatures. And one of them is just deeply in awe of how this um, man is in the uh, form and nature of uh, the incarnate one. And uh, the other one is a little bit more skeptical. Uh, saying, well, he's fallible and uh, sinful and all of that. And this is the quote. Uh, So the other angelic creature replies, He is indeed but breathing dust, and a careless touch would unmake him. And in his best thoughts, there are such things mingled as, if we thought them, our light would perish. But he is in the body of Meleldel, and his sins are forgiven. Mm, Nice. So just thinking not only of how that um, sinful nature... uh, is a very serious thing, mm-hmm. but also how there is this restoration to that true nature. And even though we have that sinful nature, it is an amazing thing that we share that same humanity that our Redeemer and the Incarnate One does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Just beautiful, wonderful illustration. Yeah, and as we're, as we're conversing about these things, sometimes you, you might... 
you might be careful to define terms too because uh, we can confuse each other with the way we speak. This has nothing to do with the comment that was just made, which is beautiful and wonderful. It just reminded me of this idea that we can talk about the human being as saint when we talk about the new man. We can talk about the old man that still indwells us as being sinner. So we can talk about those realities almost like almost like two men glued together that are distinct yet one. We can parse out the differences between those two. But then we can also zoom all the way out and look at the whole man and talk about the whole man as the Christian containing these two natures, these two opposite natures. And that's a helpful thing to remember too. We can talk about the whole man. So the whole man needs law and gospel. And that's a very profitable way to think. Okay, so anything else? Yeah, sure. In Ephesians, uh, the scriptures that we just yes, read, yes, um, it tell us what we should do, what we shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. It seems like we're very capable of doing and not doing the things that God tells us. So can, what are your comments that, you know, with our sinful nature, and be capable of doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, on the other hand, we're not capable to do right. the right thing. So, Right. Well, there's always kind of a hidden presupposition that if Paul is telling Christians to do this, then we by nature still don't want to do this. I mean, if you've got a fruitful tree out in your backyard and it's, you know, it's growing apples abundantly and everything's just great, you don't go, gosh, I really need to do more so that that tree will bear apples. It already is. Okay? But if you've got a tree that, you know, I mean, here, here's kind of to blur. If you've got a tree that's doing like some diseased fruit and some good fruit, you might research, how do I get rid of the diseased fruit. I think this is hypothetical. I don't think it really does this. I think a tree is either does good fruit or bad fruit. But um, you might, in theory, then just be like, well, how do I correct this? So I think Paul, when he looks at the Christians, realizes, and here's where the, I think the whole man, that angle is the most important. He looks at these brand new Christians, new baptisms, newly out of paganism, and there's this idea of like, well, should I go on sinning that grace may abound? And Paul says, absolutely not. And then he spends a lot of time parsing out, this is what darkness looks like. This is what light looks like. This is what it means to walk in disobedience. This is what it means to walk in obedience. Why all of that teaching is so necessary is that we would learn what it means to constantly put off the old self and put on the new self. So you're constantly going... Uh, no, that's not something I do anymore. I'm a Christian. Put that to death. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes it's, you find yourself sort of slipping back into it, and you've got to catch yourself and go, that's not what I should be doing. I'm a Christian. Okay? And then as you progress along in the Christian life, I mean, I might take up our, the rest of our, sermon, or our time with this sermon, but um, maybe so be it. So in... in uh, Bo Geert's Hammer of God, he's got a, a fictional pastor preaching a fictional sermon, but it's a really excellent sermon, and it's very fitting for just considering these things. This is the one you've probably heard me preach it several times, because I love it so much, and I think it's so helpful. That's just this idea that a new Christian goes out into the field, and he needs to clear the rocks so that you can have everything planted there. There's some rocks that are easily removed. There are some things of which Paul speaks that you can literally be done with that very day. And we should. We should as Christians. We should constantly be aware of those little pebbles, those little rocks that we could clear out right now. Sometimes they have a way of growing up out of nowhere, and there they are. Maybe they're like weeds, and we just need to do some weeding. We just need to get it back to where it was. Everything's in a constant state of decay. You know, No sooner than you build a house, the house is falling down. No sooner than you clear the weeds, the weeds are growing back. It's kind of our lives, so 
Sometimes you got to, and this is, I, I'm just not ashamed of this at all. That's why the church here is built the way it's built with these penitential seasons. Those are, how, those are spiritual house cleaning times. They're times for you to just wake up and be like, the weeds have grown, the rocks have come back. I need to clear this stuff out again. Okay, I need a fresher start. All right, that's the first kind of sin. But the second is we recognize within us these things that take a long time to get rid of. And, you know, I think that's part and parcel with the idea of bearing fruit in patience that Jesus was talking about in our text. This idea that there are some things that take a long time to work out. Especially like you wake up one day and you say, well, my relationship with my Christian kids, I'm a Christian, they're a Christian, but it's not good. How am I going to fix this? It's going to take some time. Or my marriage isn't what I want it to be. But you didn't get there overnight, so you're not going to get it fixed overnight. Okay, there are things that can take a long time. Or you can say, hey, you know, for my entire adult life, I engaged in this kind of behavior, this kind of self-medication. Okay, it's going to take you a while to overcome that as a Christian. It might be a fitful overcoming. You entrust yourself to the blood of Christ while you're doing that work. Then you're going to finally come, and it's always easier to see in other people than it is in yourself. <laughs> But you're going to come to some sort of bedrock that's just immovable. It's easy to see this in your spouse, where it's like, how many years have we been doing this? How many counselors have we been to? How many books have we read? How many resolutions have we made? You might even come to conclude that it's just not going to get any better. Now, the unchristian thing to do is to say, so I'm out. And that's true for any relationship, but maybe particularly for the um, marital relationship. C.S. Lewis is so great on this point, because he goes, the fool gets to that stage and moves off to another woman, only to go through the same process and realize all over again that there's some intractable part of her that he doesn't like and can't change. And so he just moves along like an idiot from... So all you're doing in, you know, in, in committing adultery or divorcing and, and remarrying, ultimately, is you're just exchanging one set of problems for another. We're assuming here that there isn't any biblical permiss- you know, permissive reason, biblical reason for the divorce, like sexual immorality or something like that. Okay, so we recognize then within others, because it's easier, but also within ourselves, that there are these things that though we'd like to overcome them, they in all like and though we're going to continue to strive to overcome their, them in our entire lives long, we just may not get the chance. We just may not get the chance. You can you can find things within yourself like weakness in conflict, or overbearingness in conflict, or you can see within yourself a certain sort of chronic dissatisfaction, or a certain sort of chronic non-interest in something that God that seems fundamental to what God has given you to be interested in. These kinds of things you can recognize. It's not like you just give up and say, oh, well, that's the way it is. You fight these things even when your rational self is telling you it's probably not going to be conquered. What do you do then? And the answer of this fictitious pastor in this fictitious sermon is you realize That's Golgotha. That's the stone shaped in the skull within you that you're not going to dig out of the field. It's there. What you have to entrust yourself to is that cross that is planted within that skull and the blood of Christ that drips out upon it. It cleanses the whole field cleanses all those little rocks and weeds. It cleanses the boulders and large stones. It cleanses that bedrock of sin that's not going to be removed by you in this life. And it cleanses it right up until death when Christ himself then comes and removes it. Then all the stones are finally removed from the field. That's the, what I was talking about when I talked about this final circumcision of the flesh that is death. We pass through death and the field finally becomes purified. Well, are all our efforts in vain then? Shouldn't we just do nothing, take it easy, have a nice tea, and wait for Christ to do all the work there? No, there is something that echoes into eternity. God is delighted in our efforts, even if they appear to us to be futile. 
God is delighted in them and in some respects causes our efforts to echo into eternity and to reflect in the rewards that we'll have in that next life. That's why it's absolutely worth it to fight. Even when you identify and say, here's my Golgotha, fight until your dying breath against it to find that edge and rip it out of there, all the while entrusting yourself to the blood of Christ that is shed upon that rock within you, to the fact that Christ will remove it. That faith and that striving after good works These things are delightful to God, and he promises to reward them. That's his business. He promises to reward them. You don't have to feel weird about that. That's his promise to you. So that makes the whole fight worth it and imbues it with meaning so that we never give up, even while entrusting ourselves entirely to his blood and to the fact that he will finally remove it all from us through death. Make sense? Awesome. Okay, well, that's good. That brings us to a close. So we'll pick up next week, and you know, maybe we'll reflect a little uh, off-camera if we're moving at an okay pace. I know we're, uh, we're kind of taking these tangents, and I enjoy them. I just want to make sure you are too. And if we need to find some ways to pick up pace, we can certainly do that. So let's chat about that in a bit. The Lord be with you.